welcome from Amsterdam, and thanks for tuning in to a new episode of Game Consultant. Your host of today is Reinout. For everything, there is a first time. Also, in this episode, a guest that is actually asking me to hit him. Hit me. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> virtual hit class. Welcome to Game Consultant. It is episode number 23. It's May the 3rd. Um, full, full episode today because, um, first of all, I had a quick interview with uh, Jacob or Jacob. Um, Jacob, Jacob, tomatoes, tomatoes um, of Nordic Game. And another game is going online, guys. And um, May 27 to 29, it's streaming. Um, uh, lots of people that... Are, well, actually, they're opening uh, with some people from Malmö. Um, being on stage, game developers on stage, uh, social distance. So uh, <laughs> everything's safe and secure. Um so uh, right after this, uh, I have Jacob, who's explaining why you should actually buy the ticket. It's 99 euros, um, extremely cheap, I would say. Uh, they, they have the full package, and then there is a Nordic the end of the year. But hey, let's focus on May 27th to 29th, and link is in my blog or description. So you can click on it, register, and be part of this nice community called the Nordic Game. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, we're going to talk to Kate Edwards because she's the special guest of today. And, um, yeah, what can you say about Kate? Well, we're talking about her passion of the global game jam. Um, but also, um, she's, she's actually talking about how game workers unite are working. Um, some concerns she has about how people are, well, management actually are dealing with certain situations that make um, their co-workers feel unhappy. So, um, really a fun interview. Next to that, um, very interesting also is that Joachim actually came up with 10 reasons why an investor will say no. Um, one of the key things is, is that, yeah, I, I see that going around. Lots of people say like, yeah, I have a list of three, 400, a gazillion investors and then they're mailing them, all of them, and, and, and you know, you either end up in the spam or they don't respond because they got many, many emails like that. Um, so uh, one advice he's already giving, hey, uh, find someone that actually has gotten an investment of that investor and let them make the intro. Um, he has more like that. And uh, so Joachim of Elite Game Developers. Um, yeah, full program. Love it. Let's do this. So as for today, I actually, um, I wanted to inform you guys about Nordic Game. Nordic Game is an event where uh, I, I go on a regular basis. It's it's a fun event. It's it's cozy. It's um, actually also very worthwhile. A lot of people that have gone there always come back and uh, had good good talks, good meetings, good insights. And um, as you all know, um, yeah, we sort of have an isolation. Some people are locked up, not permanent, uh, unfortunately. But um, anyways, a Nordic game is going online. And, and also, well, in the ticket price, they give you something that is towards the end of the year. You also get a pass. But for now, something is more important because May 26th, 27th, 28th and 29th, it's uh, Nordic Game and uh, Nordic Game Online. So, um, yeah, actually, uh, I have Jacob here and I want to get lots of updates from him in the next couple of weeks until the event uh, who's going to speak, uh, who's, uh, well, some sponsors, well, you know, the whole shebang. So, Jacob, welcome. Um, you. you just said hit me. Uh, I slapped you one, so. <laughs> Thank you for that. Hit me. <laughs> <laughs> With your rhythm stick. Yeah. Let's <laughs> not go there. <laughs> um, Nordic Game, what can we expect? Uh, first of all, uh, ticket sales has started, uh, I think, uh, as per Wednesday or Thursday. Um, yes. 
So uh, why should people go? Um, where should they go to online to register? How they, can they watch a stream? Uh, how will Nordic Game Online look? Well, uh, thank you for that question. Uh, it's uh, something that we've been uh, working and we're still working on, basically, because, uh, damn, that's, uh, that's some, some transformation when you want to do an online conference as we do. But we also want to, uh, we have postponed our physical event to November and we want to... Uh, you know, make people aware, and we also want them to uh, be part of both um, if they can. So um, it's it's quite a uh, quite a puzzle. <laughs> but for yeah. the online version of Nordic Game in, as you said, twenty seventh to twenty nine of May, um, we have just announced our uh, online pass for only ninety nine euro, uh, which I think is a really really great price. And there's even some nice. Uh, extra discount in there i'm going to explain in a while but for the 99 euro you get a full pass for the online conference of nordic game and that is first of all happening on our um, conference website called uh, conf.nordicgame.com you can also access it from the um, our news portal nordicgame.com yep. so you don't have to write conf. in the beginning <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which can be a hassle for some. Um, and 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 our activities and the conference will be uh, will be starting there. Point of departure. That is where you buy your ticket, and that is where we will post the uh, all the stuff that we are going to uh, to create, and that will be happening through the three days. It is basically three corner stones. Uh, just as our tagline, you know, I don't know if you know, but it is. Uh, knowledge, emotion, business. Um, just like those three words, we've tried to uh, create three pillars of our online uh, show. So for the knowledge part, we're going to do uh, a, a full three-day uh, live stream speaker program. Um, it is going to happen live on stage. For some of the speakers, some of the speakers that are living in Malmo, because we will build a, st a studio slash stage in Malmo. Um, so where we will uh, have our production team and we will film as many of the talks as possible. I will be there um, to host the whole thing and to do Q&As uh, between the audience and the speakers. Um, so I'm, I'm really thrilled. It, it can, it, it, it's both terrifying but it's also really fun because, because it makes you uh, it makes us um, that we can do talks in a in a wide variety of of of, of formats you can say so so we will yeah. start our opening keynote on uh, wednesday uh, 27th will actually be a um, panel live on stage in malmo consisting of lead developers uh, from some of the bigger and smaller that as well studios from Mamo, like uh, it's, it's been led by uh, Michael Howe, who's a lead designer uh, in Massive. Yeah. And uh, they will sit in a panel, obviously with the, with the, uh, the, 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 the required um, distance between them. Yeah. We are going to create a widescreen panel with two <laughs> apart from each other. Um, yeah. But they will, then they will discuss um, how they look at their jobs of, of being a lead designer, what they could have learned or what they could have, uh, what they have learned and, and brought into their, their current uh, games they're working on, but with a main yep. focus on retro gaming and, and which games that really got them started uh, to think as a lead designer. So I think that's a, quite a good start to the speaker program because it will show a Great variety of the studios based in, in Mamo, which are really cool. There's so much going on in in, in, in that city. I'm from Copenhagen, yeah. you know, but um, the physical Nordic game is always in Malmo. Yeah, yeah, um, it's, a, it's a lovely city. And, then, uh, but it's, that's, and that's then, actually, oh, hold on, that, that's, that's really cool because you actually have people from Malmo, happen to be also the vendor that actually come to a location, will take the one and a half meters distance yes. and actually kick it off. That's, that's a nice angle to, to an online event. Yeah, I think so. Well, because I, I, you know, I have big respect for all the online conferences I've been attending 
so far. And you know, all of us, we need to do, we need to go from physical to to online uh, yeah. to be able to carry out our our events. Yeah. But, but what I think is uh, is is kind of missing so far, at least, is this kind of a personal touch. I think it's a the distance. The distance is a, a big uh, hurdle or challenge when you want to create something that is social, that is contact. I know yeah. you know as well as me sitting in uh, in meetings online via Zoom or so. Is yeah. it, it, it's okay, but there's something missing, right? There's a component yeah. there that is that it's hard to tackle. So one of our one of the things that I've been trying to do with this is is to actually get some speakers to be there live on stage, and then we have a lot of remote speakers as well who's sitting, you know, all over the world, um, mainly from Europe, though. So we don't clinch with the with the time differences and so on. But we have. Yeah. A couple of U.S. speakers too, and they will then appear on the screen at the live uh, studio with me there as host, and maybe also another person that can then interact on the live on the big screen there, being filmed on a live stream. <laughs> yeah, does that cool. make sense? Yeah, yeah. Hey, and um, to see all of this. Um... I shared yesterday something and someone said like, oh, well, there's so many options and choices and, and there's the scroll and, and we talked about it and we said, yeah, well, you always a space for uh, improvement. Yeah. But, um, but if you had to advise, uh, let's say the indies out there, if, if you want to uh, get a, a ticket, if you want to register, yeah. what should be the path that people should choose from? I mean, if, if I obviously wanted them to buy a full pass for both the, our online show in May and November, because that is also possible and you get a heavy discount there. But for, but for people that are kind of, I don't know, my economy in November and where am I in November um, can be a little bit hard to convince people to, to buy into. So, yeah. so, so that's why we have re, re, you know, launched an online-only ticket for €99. Euro. And yeah. it's really easy if you go into the registration system of our website and choose just that. And the beauty of it is that you don't have to uh, to buy anything else in addition because uh, in the 99 euro ticket is complimentary meet to match access. Normally yeah. that has a separate price tag, you know, because it's a big system and it's a matchmaking system so that you, if you are new to uh, to the business or you don't know who to talk to, or who it is that could be interesting for you to have meeting with. Um, there's a matchmaking component in that system that is guiding you. Say that you're looking for, uh, I don't know, some a service provider for your game or a, a certain aspect that you want more knowledge about or whatever it can be. Then the yeah. people, actually real people in the meet to match system who will say, well, then you should talk to this and this and this uh, person that's also registered in our meet to match system. So normally this this is an extra uh, price tag on it. When you come to Malmo, we have a big meet to match system there. But now when it's online, it's all free. All you have to yeah. do is when you register, you say, yes, I want to be part of the meet to match system and boom, then you will have unlimited access to all the other people in there and can start doing your meetings immediately. Another great thing about the online ver format is obviously compared to the physical format is that you're not restricted by the opening hours of the, of the physical conference. So if you want to do a midnight, uh, you want to burn the midnight oil with a meeting yeah. with someone in the US or whatever, it's perfectly fine to do that as well. Perfect. And, um... and you want to hear about the last, the last pillar? Because now I told you about the live stream and the yeah. internet, right? But the last thing, that is what I'm really excited about as well. It's uh, our, and it's, it goes with the tagline of, of ours, which is emotion. And emotion yeah. means a lot of things. But in this context, it's about what kind of social activities can you expect? I mean, normally at a physical noted game, you know, we have a lot of stuff. Uh, that is supposed to get people better together, to meet each other, to meet new friends, to meet new business contacts. So we create a lot of social activities. And uh, for this online version, we are trying to do just that by uh, creating a, a server on Discord, a dedicated NG20 server. Yeah. And there you will have access to a plethora of really really fun stuff if we can pull it off and i and the reason for me being a little bit vague on it 
is that we are still working on so many components. I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> reveal it too much now because oh, if one of them drops by the side, then I can be uh, accused of not uh, filling up my promises, but uh, fulfilling my promise. But I can just say that it's it's going to be a fun and different um, experience compared to a normal physical event. But I really yeah. hope that with the efforts we're trying to put in there, that it will be almost as fun and almost as rewarding with, if not even more, um, because we're trying to do a bunch of stuff. You will at least not be bored when you go into the discord server and you won't be like, okay, what am I supposed to do now? Uh, write my name or whatever. No, it's going to be, it's going to be much more than that. You, you're going to be able to even to enjoy some happenings, some concerts, there'll be uh, competitions in there. There will be specific rooms uh, where you can uh, meet the speakers after they've done the live stream. You can go there and meet the speakers to talk even more about them or uh, with them about the topics. And uh, yeah, a list of, of, of good stuff in there. So all of that for 99 euro. What is not to like, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree. I love it. Um, so... Um... This is for the Sunday, uh, so people who are listening now hear it in the Sunday episode. So on Wednesday, um, I'm going to contact you again and see if there are any updates. And, and we keep that going until May the 27th because, yeah, everyone should actually be online oh, during that, Nordic that's Games. That's so awesome that you're doing that, Reno. I would love to yeah. come back and tell more. Cool. So I guess you all know what you should do if you love gaming and you like to be part of Nordic. Um, go register. Link is in uh, the bio. Otherwise, just go to nordicgame.com. Uh, next is the item of Joachim. As said, he has some very good tips about how to approach an investor. Joachim. Thanks, Reinhardt. It's Joachim Akren here, and I'm going to go through all the interesting things that we covered this week on Elite Game Developers. If you haven't heard of us, we're a game entrepreneur development company, helping people who are starting off on their founder journey and starting their first games company. You can read the latest articles and news by going to EliteGameDevelopers.com. On this week's newsletter, we shared a breakdown from an interesting podcast episode where the guest does the best explanation in 15 minutes of what is the best kind of game design. So go to EliteGameDevelopers.com slash blog and you can find our latest newsletter from there. This week we also published an article on why investors will say no to your games company. We explain this in 10 reasons. Here is the reason number one. Doing beginner mistakes. I've often seen founders who've acquired a spreadsheet file that contains a list of 300 VCs and their email addresses. These are happy founders. They think that this spreadsheet is a gold mine. They'll start emailing these investors one at a time. They believe that this will give them high odds and success on an investment. At least one of the people on that list will provide me with the investment, right? Well, we see that there's a few problems here. Founders don't usually do the extra legwork to research the VCs on the list. What stage are they investing in? Are they familiar with gaming? If not, are they even comfortable at investing in gaming? Investors don't like cold emails. They're already getting enough cold out outreach from all over the place. So the best option would be to get a warm introduction from another founder who knows this investor. The reason it works is that the other founder is acting as a gatekeeper, only connecting the investor with people who matter. Check out the full article on our blog. And this week on the Elite Game Developers podcast, we had Emily Greer, the co-founder and CEO of Double Loop, a mobile games company based out of San Francisco, California. So Emily 
got into gaming when she co-founded Congregate in 2006. Emily has seen all the sides of online gaming, all the way from the early days of flash gaming portals to modern free-to-play days. In this episode, we talk about female founders, data-driven game development, company culture, team culture, and what it's like to raise money from investors. That's it for this week. Stay safe and stay well. Thanks, Joachim. Um, also wanted to mention, if you go to uh, EliteGameDevelopers.com, you can actually register for his newsletter. I'm a big fan of his newsletter. It gives me quite a good overview on Friday afternoon when it comes in. Um, yeah, just go there. Do your shizzle. So I guess the interview you all have been waiting for. I've been calling her the woman that doesn't need any any introduction in gaming because she has quite a track record. Um, yeah, I can tell so much, but then you can also listen to the interview. I know it's long, but you know what is good is worthwhile, isn't it? So today I'm talking to Kate Edwards and um, I just discussed with her how I would actually say, how would I announce her? Well, first of all, we agreed executive director of the Global Game Jam, but she's so much more. So if I would actually walk in the street and I walk uh, directly into you, Kate, and I would say, hey, Kate, what are you doing? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, yeah, thank you for having me. And, and then second of all, I, I guess what I would tell people is, you know, there's I wear many hats on any given day. I mean, you know, being the executive director of the Global Game Jam, which is a great privilege and I love doing it. Um, also, you know, being a geographer and a consultant at my company, Geography, to help people with culturalization issues in games and, and other content. And I do a lot of public speaking at events around the world. Um, and I'm involved on different boards, like the board of Take This, um, that deals with mental health in the game industry and, and so, several other initiatives. So um, it's busy, but I love everything I'm doing. Yeah, cool. Hey, and, 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 and I said, well, we're, we're going to talk about everything you would like to talk about. And, and the only thing I said is like, hey, um, you travel a lot. Uh, obviously, it's a much less right now, but hopefully uh, in the second part of the year, you travel all around the world. And, and, and if we would focus right now on Europe and on, on the US, it's do you see a lot of difference in culture and gaming? Um, uh, how how companies are working, how companies are being led by management. Um, what's your vision? Well, I, I think from my perception, I mean, we do have differences, obviously, because, you know, the basically the culture within a company is defined in part by the culture in which the people come from. And, um, you know, I, I, one of the stories I remember that I've, that I've told before that I think is pretty funny to me is that I remember visiting IO Interactive in Copenhagen a few years ago, and I was asking, you know, um, the, the then CEO, you know, so do your people crunch here? And the response I got was, well, no, we don't because they won't do it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's like, well, there's times when we feel like we really should crunch because we have to catch up with our schedule. But if I ask the people to crunch, they're just going to kind of laugh and just go home at their normal time. And and what I what I loved about it is the fact that it was the culture itself. They said people come in at eight or nine in the morning, they leave at five or six in the afternoon, and then nothing is going to change that because people value their time outside of work, and they come in and they give their best for those you know seven or eight hours, and then they go home. And so basically, the culture itself of the people who are doing the work dictated to the company what the hours have to be, and ultimately that's the way it should be. Whereas in the US, you often get the opposite where it's the company kind of dictating to the worker, this is how many hours you're going to work, you're going to work 12 or 16 hours a day, because we need you to work on this project. So rather than adjusting the production schedule, they actually try to enforce an unrealistic work schedule. And so 
you know, in some cultures like East Asia, that's expected. And so that just, yeah. it just happens regularly. You still hear to us what would be horror stories of work schedules in Japan and China and Korea. And yet to <laughs> yeah. them, it's, it's often considered completely normal. And people go into that wide-eyed expecting that's the way I'm going to work in my professional career. Now, then it comes to the issue like, well, do we as Westerners then inflict our personal values on them and say, that's, you can't do that. That's wrong. Well, you know, from a physiological human standpoint, it doesn't work. You know, I mean, there's been great studies that show that physi physiologically human beings, they don't last very long. They last about two weeks under those conditions of working like 12 or 16 hour days. And after that, yeah. those two weeks, there's no return on the investment. Um, and that's just a fact of being human. It's not depending on what culture you come from. So, you know, companies that use those practices basically are grinding their people in an unnecessary way, in my view. So is that to say, you know, is that cultural imperialism to tell them that they're doing it wrong? It's like, no, I wouldn't say it's cultural imperialism. I would just say it's medically unsound from a human standpoint. Yeah. 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 Hey, and, and, um, so, so, if, if if you look today at, at, at the US, I mean, um, what we discussed a little bit before, we, we see a lot of things. I mean, riot is in the news a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and I have a feeling that that's quite big in, in the US. And then if you look at Europe again, it's like, OK, we're reading the news. OK, there's something going on at riots. Uh, some people are not happy. Um, I don't know. We're, it's not that we responding more relaxed, but it's. Uh, in Dutch, we would say, fair from our bed, far from our bed show. Yeah. We're not really engaging in the story. Do you feel that's, that's actually true? Um, well, I think, you know, in the U.S., I mean, there, there definitely is more attention. When we hear stories about riot when they were having their sexism scandal, um, you know, and when we hear reports of other companies that mistreat their people or when Telltale folded all of a sudden and left all of the people high and dry without severance, um, sure. you know, because labor laws in the United States generally are terrible compared to Europe, um, which is actually one of those strong cultural differences where, you know, the labor laws in the United States are, um, really need to be improved significantly. Um, you know, compared to Europe, where, you know, some people will say, well, the schedule, the work schedule in Europe is basically because the labor laws are so strong. I think, well, there's truth to that. Absolutely. Um, but it's also because the people who do the work are also have accepted the fact that that's the way it is. And the companies have to accept that, too. Um, whereas in the U.S., it's a lot different in terms of the labor structure. And um, and I think we are getting to a point, in my impression, especially in the game industry, where people are getting really pissed off and they're getting really tired of these issues coming up over and over again. You know, when you hear about ridiculous work hours or you're hearing about things like rampant sexism going on in a company in the 21st century, this is the year 2020. And yeah, yeah. it's like these companies are still acting like it's 1955. And, you know, it's it's. To me, it's like, well, that, you know, obviously there's a certain learning curve that that company still needs to go through to basically become more enlightened about how you're supposed to treat your employees. But more importantly, it's about setting the culture of the company. And, you know, that culture is set from the top. Ultimately, you yeah. know, it, it's like the, le yeah. the leadership of the company determines the culture of that company. And so um, in much the same way in the old days, old days, back in the 90s, when I worked at Microsoft, <laughs> um, you know, I worked at Microsoft for 13 years. And when I first started in 1992, um, the company culture was was not great. Um, you were expected to work ridiculous hours. Working from home was not really an option. Of course, you didn't really have telecommuting back then necessarily, not easily. Um, yeah. You know, if you yeah. if you left early, then that was very much frowned upon. So like for myself, for example, I would take, I would wake up really early and, um, you know, my, my, my ex would take my daughter, you know, they take our daughter to school and then I would leave Microsoft like at two or three in the afternoon to go pick her up and I'd go home, you know, and then in the evening I would spend another three or four hours working. Um, and that was very much frowned upon. That was just like, that's not unacceptable because you're not here. Now, of course, that's changed dramatically over the years. Microsoft now has a great work-life balance from what I hear from, you know, from a lot of my colleagues who are still there. It's far better today 
than it was back then. Um, but my point is that at that time, back in the 90s, a lot of that tone was being set by Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer and the executive leadership who basically they were younger. They were grinding the company, you know, basically, you know, they were Microsoft was still back at that time, extremely successful and they're still yeah. still successful. But, um, yeah. you know, the, yeah. The, the, I get your point. Yeah. So. And that was that was a problem. You know, basically, we had a certain level of toxicity coming from leadership and that kind of bled down into the company structure at the time. Well, take it, take it. It's, it's, it's sort of a metaphor. So Bill Gates, uh, 1990, Bill Gates, 2020. I mean, now he's uh, he, he's spending all his money in his fund right now for COVID-19. Uh, and in the meantime, Microsoft is an okayish place to work. Um so would you reckon that we take from now, let's say from 2020, it takes 20 years before we have normal, um, let's say, work hours, uh, people accepted in what kind of gender they are and, and what kind of religion, religion, race, these mm -hmm. kind of things? It's going to take 20 years. I, I sure hope not. But then again, I, I, <laughs> I tend because I deal with culture and geopolitics for a living, I, I tend to be assume, uh, quite a cynic about human behavior. So I, 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 yeah. I always want to think the best of people. But then again, I look across the centuries of human history. And generally, my conclusion is that we really are not very good at learning from our own mistakes. We really are bad at that. But, um, you know, even with the current pandemic we're in, we we have had pandemics before on this planet and we still haven't learned yeah. about being prepared for them. But um, but yeah, I, I hope that we will learn sooner, you know, that we'll get through this faster than 20 years from now. Um, I, I do think. How can we? Well, I think. How can we I do think that? part of it, frankly, is that, you know, what I'm seeing is like with the younger generation that's up and coming right now into the game industry and the tech sector, I know people like to complain yeah. about millennials and, and make all these jokes and memes and stuff. But honestly, what I've seen with the younger age group today, like you know, people in their 20s, people in their 30s, is that there's a greater demand for a sense of social justice in the, in the way the companies treat their people. Um, and I and I say social justice in a in a good way. I mean, people want to be treated well. They want to be respected for their work. You know, they want to be paid fairly. They don't want to have gender wage gaps. You know, they want to work hours that are reasonable that give them a good balance between their life and their work. Um, and I think yeah. there's a greater expectation coming from the younger people today in general that this is this is a something that they want. And I, so I, I really think to a certain degree that change is going to come faster when we have people who are, who are younger and who are looking for jobs, when they actually are more vocal to the companies about what their expectations are. Um, you know, to give you an example, one of the things I suggested a, a year or so ago to a group of students, I said, you know what you should do is think about writing something like a manifesto about what you, the students um, would want out of the industry. And the way I phrased it is like, you are the future talent of this industry. You are the future leaders of the game industry. So why don't you be explicit to the industry and tell them, this is what we expect because this is, you know, this is, this is the kind of industry we want to work in and the kind of one that we, that we want to see. And I thought, you know, and actually there, there's actually a group of students working on that very thing right now is, is coming up with some kind of, you know, public message to, tell game companies that look we love games we want to work for you but you know you you've got to get your act together um, because on honestly if we're the incoming talent we can actually be selective you know we don't have to work for your company we can yeah. go somewhere where the conditions are better yeah that's okay <laughs> they have a choice they have a choice so yeah yeah and and well, if, if, if that group is coming, I mean, that's also, I would say, the, the upcoming rise of the indie scene, mm -hmm. uh, if we talk just about the gaming industry. So they're going to start new companies. They're going to take that uh, um, into their work uh, yes. ethics. Um, then, then hopefully we can actually manage that in, in less than 
20, so let's say 10 yeah. years. Well, I, I think it's entirely plausible because one of the things I've seen, which I think is a really good trend, is is like you mentioned about indies. I see a lot of these younger folks who they, they get their degrees in school and maybe they work a few years at a company and then they decide to branch out and create their own indie company and they they do live their values i mean they you know i i know a lot of these smaller indie companies where they're like we're like we do not crunch you know we adjust our schedule for everybody and make sure that everyone has a good work-life balance and all these things and i think that's great because they're living their values and and the other thing i think is a positive trend is i've got i've actually seen people who are veterans in the industry who've worked in AAA for many years they've left those companies and they they all also go out and start their own company, an indie company. And sometimes it's because they are fed up with the way the work lifestyle is in some of these larger companies. So they've actually, they go create their own company and from day one, they set the tone and they say, we do not crunch here. We respect everyone's value. You know, they're, you know, we're going to make sure everyone is paid fairly. And um, I think that's partially, that's what it takes. It's take, it takes that kind of leadership for people to go out and do that and to basically show others through example that you can actually do it. Yeah. It's a nice bridge you, you're actually making. I'm reading in January to 20, we had 934 locations in 118 countries creating 9,601 <laughs> games in one weekend. Yes. <laughs> Definitely want to know what's the last one. Um, but very, very precise. Um, that's, that's, that's your thingy, yeah? Yes. Uh, the global yes. game jam. I mean, uh, talk about it. Yes. Anything yeah, you want to say? <laughs> well, the Global Game Jam is awesome because to me, it, it represents some of the best aspects of the game, you know, of the whole game ecosystem. I want to say game industry, but, you know, one of the, just as a little side note, when I, when people say industry, I think we often forget the fact that industry means people. There is no mystical black box where games get created. There is no big machine. It's it's just people who are very creative and very talented who work together to make these things happen. So I, I know a lot of people who get angry at the quote industry, um, but they shouldn't be. It's just, it's people. It's the people around them and it's the people we work with. And yeah. so that's one of the things I love about the Global Game Jam is that it is this massive celebration of game creation that happens truly on a global scale. Now, the, the organization was started by Susan uh, Gold and Gorm Lai and Foad Cosmood way back when. Um, 2008 was the very first jam um, when it was very small. And then, of course, this year with the stats that you just read in 2020, it was it was, again, the largest jam we've ever held. So every year it's broken records. Yeah. And um, it's pretty amazing. The fact that we have, you know, almost 50,000 people in 118 countries making games in one weekend. And it's this huge coordinated effort. And they're all making games around a theme that we announce on that Friday before the weekend starts. And it, it just, it's yeah. such a fascinating, I mean, it's fascinating thing for me, not only as someone who works in the game industry, but also as a geographer and someone who focuses on culture, just to see the amazing interpretation of our theme, like, you know, like, um, like this year, our, um, you know, thinking about our theme um, that we had, um, or like last year, the theme about home, you know, what does it mean to be home? And how is that concept translated from one culture to another across all these different sites that are making games? And it's just, it's utterly fascinating. And so what I, what I love about the Global Game Jam is that we have, you know, yes, the majority of people involved tend to be students and a lot of our sites tend to be at schools, but then we also have, I think, at least 25 to 30% of the jammers around the world are also professional. And so they're people who have careers and they're working in games, but they still love the exercise of, of working on games and, um, you know, and, and going through this. And so to me, it's just this, this pure act of creation under constraint, of course, where you're given a theme. Like I said, this year, the theme was repair. Um, you're given about 48 hours and you're working with a team. You're thrown together <laughs> and you have to come yeah. up with something and, um, and I think it's a really healthy exercise. In fact, I was just speaking to a developer yesterday who said they they try and do a game jam every month, you know, whether it's just like a local little thing or they organize yeah. it within their own office because they feel that game jams really stimulate their creative abilities and kind of keep them sharp. Yeah. 
Yeah, funny. I'm actually looking at at one CSGO garage. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's it's funny. It's actually on the globalgamejam.org. Yeah. And then you can see all kinds of games, which is fun. So it's in 48 hours. You basically, you need to know Yeah, as best, as best as you can. Um, and I mean, I, yeah. I've had the privilege over the last many years, even when I was running the International Game Developers Association, I often did a like a keynote lecture at, at a Game Jam site. Um, somewhere in the world so it's like you know this year i was in haifa in israel um during the global game jam that was a fantastic experience and we visited jammers in tel aviv and and elsewhere and it was just a very cool experience to see how it's done in different cultures yeah hey and then dropping to um the igda yeah. um you've done that for 10 well no years. i did it for five um, so I, 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 I did, okay. I was involved with the IGDA for about 10 years, but I ran the, I was the executive director for five years from 2012 to 2017. Yeah. And then I left and uh, have not had anything to do with it since. No, do you, well, not do you think, but um, an, 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 uh, an organization like that, I mean, uh, is it standing close to the industry, do you think, uh, or is it too too uh, too far away from daily operations, daily activities well, of people. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot I could say that I don't want to go off on a sidetrack about that particular organization. I mean, one thing I would say is that I think, you know, at, at, at a fundamental level, I think it is important for game developers to have some kind of community to which they belong. It's very important. And, and I think yeah. one of the strengths that I saw when I was running the IGDA was the local chapters around the world. Um, you know, now some of those chapters are, you know, some of them drifted away from the IGDA and, and, you know, did other things. But the, but the point is that a lot of developers in different cities around the world in different locales had some kind of community they could go to and be a part of. And I honest, I really feel strongly that that's, that is such an important thing that every developer should have a community. Um, like here in Seattle, you know, we've got this fantastic group called Seattle Indies, and they are really the nexus for the indie community in Seattle. And they run great events. And um, I've been this when I've gone to their meetings, which haven't been a lot lately because I'm not here. But um, it's always super cooperative. It's really collaborative. I really love the tone of the community. And I see that replicated in a lot of places around the world. And so... So to me, is there a need for a, a big overarching organization? I no, I, I think that need is kind of past. I mean, back in the '90s, when that when you know organizations like that were created, I think there was a need at the time. But now there are so many different options for community. You've got all these different social media sites and yeah. Facebook and LinkedIn and Discord channels and Slack channels and all this other stuff. So I think the community now yeah. is is basically out there and it's connected. Whereas before that kind activity really wasn't there because that was all you know basically pre a lot of pre-internet stuff it was basically pre you know social media and so we needed a central site like that but now i think developers are, are very good at connecting themselves with each other um but like i said th- that being stated i still think it's important that there are local communities where people can actually meet up face to face when there are no pandemics yeah. and collaborate with each other yeah so uh to that sense maybe not that organization but do we do you think we need a sort of a union because i the other day i was reading something on linkedin someone was asking a question i have to well actually make over over time is that normal do i have to accept it where can i uh get advice um in other branches you you actually have a union Uh, a lot of times people talk very negative about it but in fact it's there it's 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 an institute or an organization that is there to assist uh people in a particular branch do we need that I, I my personal feeling and i've been very public and open about it is my feeling is yes uh, and the reason is this is because yeah. one of the key things i noticed when i ran the igda and, and since i left three years ago because i still interact with thousands of develop- developers around the world one of the biggest complaints i hear is this feeling of helplessness and feeling like they have no leverage to react to the way management might be treating them, whether it's work hours or wage issues or something else, or it could be sexism issues that are rampant in their company or something. And to me, you know, there needs to be some kind of mechanism to which developers can go and get help 
um, outside their company. Because frankly, you know, a lot of times I hear a lot of horror stories about people going to HR and, and not being helped. And I'm, now I say that knowing a lot of HR people, and I think they're fantastic people who mean well. But we also have to remember that for the most part, a lot of HR departments and companies are, are there to protect the company as well as the employee. So in some ways, sometimes their attention is divided. They want the welfare of the employees to be good because they want that to help the company. But then also if there's some kind of incident, that department also has to also help protect the company because of the potential legal issues. So I think there needs to be an external arbiter, some kind of external body to which developers can go, but that external body needs to have leverage. And to me, that that word leverage yeah. is the key word because that's really what developers have been seeking. And now to me, leverage takes many different forms. I mean, for a lot of industries, a union is leverage for the workers. And I think it makes sense um, in a lot of situations in the game industry to have a union, um, especially in the United States where our labor laws are weak. Um, you know, in Europe and in other places where the labor laws might be a lot stronger and might be more pro-worker, you may or may not need a union. I'm not saying it's not a good idea because obviously there's tons of unions in Europe um, despite good labor laws. Um, so I think it depends on the individual locale because the labor laws do shift from place to place. But other forms of leverage might be necessary too. So I think unions are a good form of leverage that that people in the industry need to look at seriously. And I love the work that Game Workers Unite has been doing for the last two years to raise awareness of unions and, and what that means and, and the, the, the role of a union, the role of guilds. The other, the other form of leverage I think can also be useful is like a legal defense fund, which is something I've been working on for game developers, which is essentially, you know, having some kind of resource where developers can go and get help and get legal advice for an issue that may have happened in their company. Um, so they can, you know, actually have somewhere to go that specifically is trained to deal with issues in the game industry. And um, I think that's also something that's important because basically, in yeah. short, companies need to understand that you you got to treat your talent with the respect that they deserve. I mean, these are these people are your talent and you need to treat them like priceless talent because they are your best asset. Your IP is not your best asset. It's your people. And so when companies forget that, yeah. then I think there needs to be a mechanism in place to help the workers reinforce that with management. Is that well? Then, then obviously you're. Well, that comes down to local communities again. It does. You can't do that from yeah, because the law is so much different. I mean, in in the US, it's 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 from one paycheck to another, and your last paycheck could literally be your last. Um, in 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 Holland, for example, well, you still have two months. Uh, and 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 for what case you get a, a package or whatever. Yeah. Well, exactly. Um, because, you yeah. know, a lot of people, I mean, especially my friends outside of Europe, they don't know that in, in the United States, um, and it's very prevalent in the tech sector, um, which is not unionized, you have something called at-will employment. And what at-will employment means is that literally at will, the company at any time for no reason at all can just show up in your office and say, okay, you're done today. You can go home now. And it's like, what? Yeah. And you're like, what? It's like, yeah, yeah we don't need you anymore. We, and they didn't have to give you any warning. Now, by standard, a lot of contracts do build in a two-week warning because it tends to be a standard thing here in the U.S. But um, but technically, with at-will employment, you know, you don't have to give any warning at all. And now, of course, companies will say, well, hey, it works both ways. So at any time, you can leave. So that's good, right? It's like, yeah, well, how many times has that been to the employee's advantage, you know, where they show up at work one day and say, you know what? I'm tired of working here. I think I'll leave. That it really doesn't happen both yeah. ways. Actually, you surf out your contract uh, because any uh, new employer is asking, how's your contract looking? Well, I have two months notice. Okay, so then the earliest you can start, well, that's that date. Okay, then you start that date. You hand in your notice and, and you do your work and you do your right. handoff and then you go. That's how you respectfully exactly. treat your employer, but the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I think yeah. that, you know, yeah. and that, and, you know, I think yeah. in most cases, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because most people don't leave their employer. I would say most people don't under duress under some kind of negative situation. Um, 
you know, but there's those times where there is a situation where it's a conflict and it's like, well, somebody needs to be able to step in and help resolve that conflict. And that's, that's where I do feel strongly yeah. that something at the local level, like a union within that company or a local union, like in that state or province or whatever, um, can actually intervene and help work this out. Yeah. In an ideal world, what would you like to change still in this gaming industry? Because you were very adamant about industry, about... So for people, because what, what I see is that you're definitely there for, for Indies, uh, but then you talk direct. If you say Indies, you actually always think about people. If you say gaming industry, yes. you think about companies, but it yes. is people. <laughs> but it is a, it's a perception. But if you talk Indies, we always we see in front of us uh, three, four people uh, uh, really enthusiastic, working on something, uh, hard work, um, uh, rough, uh, yeah, success is, is around the corner, but <laughs> when do I see that corner? Um, <laughs> but in an ideal world, what would you like to see or what do you think that should be changing in the next five well, to ten years? Well, you know, there's, there's two levels to that. I mean, one... one 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 part that I that really bugs me about the industry, and I've given lectures on this, is that you know the we still have a problem with public perception. Um, you know, we still in many circles in different countries are seen as a negative cultural force. Um, that is changing. There's no question that it's changing, and it will change demographically. You know, as as people who grew up with consoles and all that become politicians and leaders, um, you know, over the next ten to twenty years, um, I don't think that's going to be much of an issue anymore. I think games are going to be more fully accepted into society as just another key form of entertainment and another key thing that humans do, just like every other form of media that we consume, but we're not quite, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. And I, what I, what pisses me off about it is that the industry itself, meaning the people in the industry, so many people I talk to, especially some of the leaders I talk to, to me, they sometimes just, they're in a position to reinforce the message about what games really are and what games can be. And yet it's just not reinforced very much. Um, you know, because, like when I when I've given lectures on this topic, one of the things I make a strong point of showing the developers in the room is I show them, you know, I show them this list of all these forms of communication that have existed throughout human history, like, you know, art and cave painting and communicate, you know, language and all these other things, you know, talking about radio and television and, and um, so on and so on. And I put video games at the end of the list. And I say, right now, we are current, we are the current evolution of human narrative. We are the ones who are shaping how stories and ideas get communicated from one generation to another. All these other form of media still exist and they are still used for that same thing, but we are at the forefront of redefining the combination of, of technology and narrative and, and basically the conveyance of ideas from one generation to another. And that's exciting. That to me is super cool. That is what makes us art. That is what makes us part of culture. Um, and I get really excited about that. And yet I still meet so many people who just, well, it's just a business. Hey, you know, we're shoving out these games. We're making a lot of money. We're optimizing the, you know, ROI and blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, that's all nice. But it's like, but to me, you kind of <laughs> lose sight of what you're actually doing on a daily basis, which is you're, you're, you're essentially really reshaping culture in a big way. And to me, I take that really seriously. That's why I love what I do. And that's why I love being in this industry. And I wish more people would kind of adopt that mindset because to me, that that puts more responsibility on our shoulders as people work in the industry to be a representative. So when I talk about, you know, how we promote games out there into the world and society, I'm not talking about promoting a game. I'm not pr talking about promoting the next Assassin's Creed or Halo or Call of Duty or any of that. I'm talking about promoting games as a positive cultural force. And I just wish that more developers out there in their daily lives, when they're talking to the public and out there, you know whatever they're doing i wish more would would take that opportunity to reinforce that because i think if the public heard that more um and and understood better what games are and understood how games are made i think i think it would change things a lot faster i mean for example i've often challenged developers whether they're big studios or small ones you know even small indie studios i'm like 
when's the last time you asked a politician to come and, and visit you and, and show them what you do and help educate them on how games are made and who the people are who make games and what goes into it and yeah. help them understand it. And I've heard countless stories of people who, when they did that, the politician who may have been even anti-game before that, they walk out of that situation saying, wow, I had no idea. This is like a real serious tech job. And these are really cool people who have good jobs and they pay their taxes. And I like them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, we've worked with, with, with several governments and, and uh, the perception is always, well, definitely in, in, in the US yes. when there is a shooting, it's always down to, to gaming. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they, for example, in Germany they're, uh, and Finland, it's, they're very close. The governments are really yes. close with, with the game community. Um, what is striking me, you use the word art. Um, an, an art of game development, but do you do you see game development I do. as art? I do. I, I I really do because to me, art yeah. is, is self expression. So in any any form of media that's yeah. out there, whether it's painting or writing or filmmaking or whatever you want to select as a form of medium, all of it comes down to self expression, and that to me is art. And games have gotten to the point where the tools have been democratized and it's very easy to download, you know, the free version of Unity or Unreal or all these other tools and learn how to make games. Most of the knowledge is up on YouTube or elsewhere. I, I've met so many people around the world, in, including in, in emerging markets all over the place who are self-taught and they make amazing games because they just decided that games are the medium that I want to use for self-expression. And, um, and so now that we're at that point where games have, I, to me, achieved the same level of, of accessibility, for the most part, there's still a technological barrier. If somebody doesn't have a, a computer, um, then that is a, a barrier. Um, but nonetheless, even without a computer, yeah. you can still design games I and mean, you can still make board games. You can still design a game that eventually could be taken into a digital form. Yeah, funny enough, um, I was talking mm -hmm. to Yvette Wong. She, um, uh, she she has a really fun job. Um, we talked about uh, social interaction, uh, of the role of algorithms and social interactions. That's actually mm -hmm. uh, the topic we were discussing. Um, and then we talked about social identity. That's more for, from a gamer's perspective, um, who they are online. It's, it's their own world. And... Um, and out of that, uh, the, the question popped up, uh, for example, what Fortnite is doing right now yes. with these live events, with um, music DJs, the whole thing. Um, uh, Microsoft, yeah, well, uh, Xbox had to be the entertainment center of the living room. That's what they said years ago. And, and well, uh, today you can actually see a game mm -hmm. as an entertainment platform. Um so on one hand, you have art, uh, but gaming is, is actually inviting other forms of art, like music, movies, actually to be part of the platform that they, they have created. Um, how do you look at that in the future? Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of interesting things happening on that front. I mean, the, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of us realize is that part of the future of our industry is how the intersection of user-generated content um, intersects with the games that we're creating and the platforms that, that we're making. Um, you know, we've, we've seen more and more signs. I mean, Fortnite is a good example where, you know, the features that they built into Fortnite allowed a certain level of user-generated content and, and self-expression that is really engaging. And I, and I think there's a kind of a, a happy medium that um, a lot of games are finding where they kind of, you know, they allow a platform, they allow a narrative or an experience that draws the players in, but then they give the players a certain level of agency. That's not just about like running around and solving puzzles or shooting things. It's also a level of agency in the creation space, like, you know, building, being able to build something like a little house or something that you want that reflects your style or, you know, your design sense. And, I think when we open up the door of the creation side a little bit and allow users that flexibility, it's really engaging for people because ultimately, I mean, I, I 
I just firmly believe that human beings, one of the things that we are best at is we create. That's what we do. It's one of the things that really sets us apart. I mean, we, and especially from that self-expression standpoint, we make stuff, we build stuff, we draw stuff, we, you know, we code stuff. Uh, it's what we do. And um, so I yeah. think when you engage people on that level or get, at least give them the option, because not everybody wants to make something, but I think when you allow that, um, I think as more and more games do that over time and as more and more and more games see or, you know, game platforms um, and the games themselves see themselves as, as, as that reality. I mean, Minecraft obviously is the explicit embodiment of this where it's like, that's the whole point of Minecraft is, is giving you a platform for creation. And we've seen amazing things that, that people have done in Minecraft, you know, kids and adults and, um, so to me, that's that's part of the reason why Minecraft has become so utterly and crazy popular is because of that ability. And so I think we're going to be seeing more and more of that as we go along. And and certainly when you look at like the emerging technologies like AR and VR, that level of engagement where you're allowing user-generated interactivity, um, that really is what has been driving, I think, a lot of the interest in, in AR and VR so far, you know, like with the, the different painting tools and things of that nature, where you can go into a space and actually create stuff. Um, and, and so I think, I think that's where, I think leveraging that sense of agency, I'll just keep using that word because that's really embodies what I mean that's going to be where it's at, I think. And, and But we also have to be really careful about how do we allow agency without having it get out of control, especially when we're also dealing with massive communities, um, which can be challenging to manage at times with certain levels of toxicity and all the other issues that come around yeah. with community management. Yeah. Brings me right away to the last question. Uh, what would be a message for for the gaming industry that you want to give them, the people? One you already said, it's, it's how, how uh, people from management can actually um, tell more about uh, what they do, how they're doing yes. it. It's, it's, it's a culture, it's art. But if you, if, if you had to bring a, a message to, what would be your message, your, your vision that game developers uh, should take care of or that that to me is keep easy. in mind take care of each other that i mean it sounds trite but it's honest it's just yeah. like i i you know again going <laughs> yeah. back to my comment that the industry is people we really really need to understand that and embody that every single day and remember that you know as a massive group of people who are all passionate about the same thing um we don't need to fight with each other we don't need to argue with each other you know of course if we, we might argue about design choices and things like that on a game project sure it happens but i mean yeah. from a larger sure. sense it's like we're you know we we are all working towards the same thing we all have a similar passion for this medium and we all need to watch each other's backs and and so you know this is a reason why i'm on the board of Take this that deals with mental health is the reason I'm a patron of the Safe in Our World, which is also deals with mental health. Um, the organization out of the UK. It's why I am passionate about working on the advocacy side for developers because I ultimately want to see conditions to be good for the people who want to make games, and that really depends on on all of us helping each other. So being mindful of someone's physical and mental wellness when you're working with them is really important. Um, and it's something that tends to get overlooked because we all get like, oh, passion, passion, passion. I'm going to make this game and I'm going to work 16 hours because I love doing it. It's like, yeah, that's great. You know, it's great that you have the passion, but, you know, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. So you really have to, you know, be careful about how you manage your own time and, at the, and, and also, you know, help others around you um, understand, you know, that, that you know, you got to pace yourself. And because I, and this basically speaks to the point that I've seen far too many people burn out too quickly in this industry. And it's mainly just because yeah. they have that desire and the passion, but they just don't regulate it, you know, and they've not, they're not really thoughtful about what it's doing to them on a baseline human level. And so it's like, it's great to have that desire and passion, but you just gotta, you know, um, don't give it all away at once. And certainly don't give it all away to one company and burn yourself out. Yeah. In the meantime, I'm I'm uh, want to 
get back actually to the global jam. Um, how can 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 game developers actually uh, <coughs> apply? I mean, you have on the site the locations, the jam sites, um, and so you have Japan, Russia, Spain. But uh, if if I want to participate, how how as a game developer can I apply? Yeah, so, or... so yeah, so we um, will typically what we way. do is uh, usually around September October is when we open up the site registrations for the Global Game Jam. Um, so we have we have the people who want to run a site, they sign up for it, and then they and then we'll have jammers sign up as well um, for the, and they'll sign up for the sites that are local to them because it is a live event that people go to. So you know, obviously, we're very happy that it happened before the pandemic hit this year and we're certainly hoping that by january of next year when we do the next global game jam that by then um things will have calmed down enough to where we can still you know go back to doing live sites um we also run another event in july this year called the global game jam next and so that's designed for people who are in their teens so it's generally 12 to 17 year olds so if you know people who are in that age group and you want them to be involved in the, in the global game jam that was that will be a great opportunity now that event we are doing virtually so we're coming up with a new structure for how people can run the, a virtual site and and still run a team of of uh, people in that age group for and it'll be a two-week stretch of uh, of learning so we have a lot of curriculum so it's a great opportunity for people in that age group to learn about game making and then they're going to have a chance to do the jam and actually make a game at the same time so that's going to be coming up in july um but we're going to need we're going to need people yeah. who, you know, especially people who are game developers or if they're interested in being a site organizer, if they're interested in being a mentor, um, hopefully by next week um, we will have um, they can look for an announcement. We are going to be putting up the the sign up page on the Global Game Jam Next site, which is ggjnext.org. Um, so, yeah, I would keep an eye out for that yeah. if they're interested. If you send me the links, then yes, at least exactly. I have it already in my blog post. Great. Cool. Okay. Thank you very, very, very much. This was uh, yeah. there was a lot. Uh, I, I typed. I I, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I have a thing about union. Uh, I have about work ethics. The difference between U.S. and Europe. Labor laws. Uh, well, game workers unite. Uh, legal advice for the gaming industry. Um, help each other uh we have the global gem and then uh definitely yes. the global yeah. gem i call it the young age um yeah we come so, a lot of um <laughs> i'm gonna wish you yeah 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 that's, <laughs> well, that's, great. that's exactly what i wanted to do <laughs> i uh, i want to thank you for this and uh um well i'm sure that um i might actually um contact you in the future oh, again and, and to get yeah, some more do. Always, on the, always on the global to talk. Gem. cool Yeah, that was Kate and uh, one of the most fun interviews uh, I've had so far. Um, yeah, she really had a, a number of very good points. And um, I hope uh, um, after you have listened to this um, interview that you do something with it. Um, a reach out to everyone, as people call it today, very trendy, a shout out to everyone that is not happy. Um, uh, if you see something that is happening uh, in your company that is not good, um, people are being harassed or not being treated well, um, there is something that you can do. And it's not always, um, uh, it doesn't have to be the negative. It can also be positive. Uh, you can address it. You can also ask advice. Um, I've put a link of uh, Game Workers Unite uh, on the blog. Um you have a voice, you know, and very important what Kate said. Uh, the people make the game industry. I'll leave it for that. Um, this was episode 23 of uh, Game Consultants. Um, I want to wish you guys a wonderful week uh, back on Wednesday. And uh, ciao for now. This was all for today. Thanks so much for listening to Game Consultant. Tune in next week for a brand new episode. And remember, do share this podcast with other members of the games industry.